Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. So early in high school, um, a, buddy and, a buddy of mine, Dustin Choate, and I started going to Believer's Church on Friday nights. And I met the youth pastor there at the time, Jason Jackson, and I thought he was a really swell guy, uh, except that he called me Zach for like two years. And I, I didn't have the nerve to correct him. And so the second half, I've come a long way in my assertiveness, by the way. So toward the tail end of high school, Jason was uh, coming around to Metro Christian, speaking in chapel, and we got to share a really unique experience being a part of a Monday evening Bible study with a a Bible teacher at Metro, uh, from whom we both just learned a ton. And I remember the Monday night where Jason was sharing uh, about how he had proposed to his girlfriend, Sarah Goolsby, and uh, just really fun. I've gotten to know this guy over the years. Uh, When I was in seminary at Asbury Seminary, for my program, I had to take Greek and Hebrew. I was a horrible student at both of those. And uh, as it turns out, this same Jason Jackson from high school became my Hebrew professor. And he can tell you just what a horrible Hebrew student that I was. And I thought, I need to make it up to this guy. Todd and I were on staff at Asbury Church together while Jason was living in Wilmore and teaching at Asbury Seminary. And uh, there was a position in discipleship available, and Todd and I both knew Jason, and we were pulling for him to come to Tulsa. He moved to Tulsa, and we got to go from a teacher-student relationship to a peer relationship as as colleagues at Asbury. And uh, he's transitioned, and he and his family are living in Colorado Springs at New Life Church, which some of you may have heard of. And, And Jason is an executive pastor of their downtown campus. He's one of their teaching pastors. He's a Hebrew scholar. He's just written an eight-week study on the book of Amos, which you should open up the book of Amos later and see how long it is. Yeah, I would, I'm surprised that you got eight weeks out of it, but it is dense, this dense study that you can get through Seedbed Press, and you should all go home and buy it now, because we will be looking at Amos later in the year. More than anything, Jason is a really dear friend, and as we have been going through the journey through the year of the Bible... And uh, knowing that we were going to be at about Isaiah by the time Holy Week came, I thought, man, wouldn't it be rich if we could get Jason down here to illuminate for us uh, the story of the cross through the lens of the Old Testament, which is what we've been reading. And so uh, I'm so pleased. uh, Man, I just feel like crying with you here. Dang it. I'm so pleased to welcome Jason. Jason is a great guy. So let's please give him a warm cornerstone welcome as Jason comes to share with us. Sorry, Zach. <laughs> I couldn't help it. You, hi. It's good to see you. This, um, strangely, from you know, kind of in the midst of everything, feels like a second home to me. Um, this is only the second time I've been here. I was actually here week two, uh, right after Cornerstone started. My wife and I were in town for a wedding and got a chance to be here for the second week of Cornerstone. Uh, but as we were, I was preparing to come and just even looking around the room, 
so many faces that I know and I love. It is contagious. You started it. Um, from, I mean, just dear friends, people who've, we've traveled all sorts of various seasons of life together um, in all sorts of contexts, um, to folks who I had the chance to officiate their weddings. Where are Stacy and Adam at? I saw Stacy in here earlier, way in the back. Hey, buddy. How are you, man? Good to see you. And then Todd was actually the Asbury officiant at my wedding. Um, so all sorts of, you know, kind of moments in the middle of that. Folks I met through Asbury, dear friends of Sarah and our family. And it is just good to be here, especially on a night like tonight, um, to be amongst family as we think about one of the most important events in history. And we stop for a moment and we pause and we look at the cross again and behold the lamb that was slain and say, okay, what is really happening here in this story that for many of us has become so familiar over the years? And for others, it may be relatively new, but to continue to come back to the cross and say, okay, Lord, what do you want to teach us? What do you want to show us here in the middle of tonight. And so what we want to do tonight is we're going to start in John chapter 19 and look at John's accounts of the crucifixion and then come back to that account through several angles. So if you want to follow along, John chapter 19, we're going to begin in verse 28. This is this. This is later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, you know, just kind of on the side. Uh, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plants and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when you received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And so the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead... They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. And then it says this. It says, these things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. It's interesting in this passage as John is telling us what happened on that day, on that Friday that we now call good. He uses the word scripture three times. Just says it, the very beginning scripture, and then comes back to it two times at the end, scripture. And when Jesus and the New Testament writers are talking about scripture, they're always talking about the Old Testament. 
that for them, there was no New Testament. They were, you know, writing it eventually. But when they're thinking about the word Scripture, they're specifically talking about what we call the Old Testament. You know, that first two-thirds of your Bible that looks a little bit newer than the last third. The part that has, you know, the pages aren't sticking together yet. They're somewhat fresh. And he goes on and he quotes Exodus 12. And he quotes Zechariah 12. And he quotes Deuteronomy 21, or alludes to it in the middle of it. And so here we have this moment that the disciples, as they're thinking about the story of Jesus, and they're getting ready to write down the Gospels, and they're teaching and training and proclaiming the good news about what has happened in Jesus. And more than anything, they're trying to make sense of what just happened. They're trying to make sense of, okay, what, what just took place This guy, Jesus, who we came to believe is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior and anointed King of Israel, he just got killed in front of our eyes. And then three days later, he was back. And then 40 days after that, he was gone again. What just happened? How do we make sense of any of this? Is there looking for language to explain it? Is there looking for categories and lenses and ways to describe it and defend it and proclaim it and to teach it and to invite people into it? Is there looking to try to figure out how to make sense of all of this, to understand, to wrap their minds around these events? They only only go one place the Old Testament. They go here. They're like, we, what happened? And start going through all the things that they know so well to make, to bring clarity to what just happened. They're starting to go like, it's like this. It's like this. As my kids say every time they see a movie, I don't know what it is, but we'll be sitting at the, the table. I've got three little girls. We're sitting at the table eating, and just, I don't know, they're like, it's like this, Dad. And then they quote some obscure reference from Nutjob, too, and I'm so lost. Like, I, what's like that? I have no clue what you're talking about. And sometimes that happens to us, where the New Testament writers are like, it's like this, it's like this. And they're referencing these things, and we're going, I don't know what you're talking about. And why would you include that detail? That seems a little unnecessary. And I would just, can we skip that and go on to the good parts? Why do you keep going back to this? But Jesus himself, as he was alive and walking with his disciples, says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. That's how he described them. These are the scriptures that testify about me. When Philip encountered Jesus, he runs to Nathanael and he says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and the one whom the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the one from Moses and the prophets, the one that we've been looking for. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, this very early letter, he says, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead according to 
the scriptures. Like, Paul, did you have to repeat yourself there? Why are you insisting on this? And even later on, we fast forward and we get to the, the writing of the Nicene Creed. This creed that the church has long held is like, this is what we believe. They say, for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and he was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Like so important to the follow, early followers of Jesus, so important to the church that they include it in the creed in accordance with the scriptures that all of this happened in accordance with the Old Testament. Why is it they continue to come back to this? Joel Green, a New Testament scholar, said this. He says, what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the Scriptures. That what has happened with Jesus can only be understood in light of the Old Testament. That if we do not understand Jesus in this light, we actually miss out on what it is, who Jesus is, and what it is that Jesus came to do. And he said, likewise, the Scriptures themselves can only be understood in light of what happened with Jesus. If we try to understand the Old Testament and we don't have Jesus in our minds, then somehow we're going to miss this too. That the two actually go together, and if we separate them, something suddenly becomes out of focus. It's like sitting in the optometrist office and trying to look at something. Like, does that make sense? Like, I don't know what that is. And then all of a sudden, ah, that's it. Now I can see that's what's going on in the middle of this. So for the followers of Jesus, when they're trying to make sense of what just happened, they did what Jesus told them to do. They went back to the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that testify of him. So they look back and they continue to immerse themselves in the Old Testament. And they did, as they did, everything began to come into focus. They began to see the shapes and the colors and the textures and the beauty and the nuance and the depth and the significance of it all. They began to see clearly. Do you guys know anybody who's like a super fan of the Avengers or Harry Potter or Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings? Any, is there anybody here self-confessed a super fan? Okay, a few? A few? Which one is it? Y'all yeah, <laughs> Bill's like everyone and 47 other ones. <laughs> I have them all down. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. If you if you ever been I was I walked up to a group of people one day at church afterwards and they were talking about Avengers. And they were having this conversation and I couldn't follow. I was like, I've seen some of the movies. But I do not have a clue what you're talking about. There's a guy I knew in college who was a super fan of Lord of the Rings. And so he didn't just read, like, you know, the trilogy, and didn't just read The Hobbit, but he read the histories of Middle-earth, and then studied Tolkien's maps, and set his heart to learn Elvish. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Is there nothing else going on in your life right now that you have time to learn Elvish? This is coming from the guy that spent time learning Hebrew, so I know I don't have a place to talk. <laughs> but what happened is that you, you began a conversation with him about the Lord of the Rings, and he saw things that there was no way that I could see. 
He understood things that were happening in the story that I completely missed. That he made connections from things that went this, 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 and this is now the significance in the media that I'm going, you lost me with the first move that you just made. I have no clue what you're talking about, but he could read in such a way because he knew the story so well, he could make connections that no one else could make. And he could see layers that no one else could see. And this is what happened with the disciples. They knew the Old Testament so well that as they looked at Jesus through these lenses, all of a sudden things began to pop. It's like, oh, that's what was happening. That's what was going on in the middle of this. We didn't see it then, but now we can see it. Which is why I'm so excited you guys are doing the Year of the Bible. Taking an entire year and saying, okay, we're going to take those first pages that are a little bit crisp, and we're going to wrinkle them a little bit. (laughs) We're going to dive in, and we're going to read these stories, and we're going to be confused in Leviticus and lost in Numbers and unsure in Deuteronomy, and it's okay, but we're just going to dive in and continue to read and immerse ourselves and say, okay, Lord, help us to understand what's happening here. And so what I want to do tonight with that idea in mind is go back to John. And look at those places where he brings the Old Testament and see what it is that John's trying to say to us. What are the things that he's, he's saying, it's like this, that it's easy for us to miss because of the kind of the obscurity of the Old Testament times sometimes for us. We're going to start John 19.31. It says this, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Seems kind of like an obscure detail to us. What was going on in the midst of these moments for the crucified is that crucifixion could actually take several days. That if someone is nailed up on a cross, nailed their feet, nailed in their wrists, what would happen is is that people wouldn't die from crucifixion, they'd die from suffocation. And so as they're hanging there on the cross, what would happen is all the weight would come forward in the chest, making it difficult to breathe. And so they'd push themselves up on their feet to take a breath and then fall back down. And this could go on for several days, this excruciating, torturous crucifixion. And the only way to speed it up that was cruel in the Roman mindset is to break somebody's legs because now you can't catch your breath. Now you can't push yourself back up. Break the legs, and now the suffocation happens faster. But the torture is still excruciating. So the question, of course, is, well, then why would the Jewish leaders want that to happen? Why are they so concerned with getting Jesus down off this cross as quickly as possible? Why do they want the bodies taken down? And what John refers to is a passage in Deuteronomy 21. It says this, it says, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole or a tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse and you must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. You must not desecrate the land? See, what would happen in the middle of Old Testament capital punishment is capital punishment was normally done by stoning. 
not by crucifixion, but in some cases, we have accounts where the corpse, after being stoned, would be displayed on a post or a tree as sort of a deterrent to everybody, like, don't follow in this person's path. It's pretty good, you know, negative encouragement at that point to see this and to go, oh, yeah, I do not want to go in that way. But in the Old Testament, a dead body, a corpse, was considered a pollutant. That if you came in contact with the dead body, you were now unclean and unable to join the community in worship on Sabbath. You were unclean. But what happened is if you left a body up overnight, then as the body began to decompose, animals would come, birds would come, and begin to tear apart the body and take it and scatter it all over the land, now making the land unclean, polluting the land, the land that God had given to them. So for the Jewish leaders, they believed that Jesus was cursed by God and that his body was actually toxic and had to be buried, had to be put under so that the pollutant could not spread. This body was in some way infectious, like a contagious, like the movie Outbreak. Like you just have to get the bodies out as quickly as possible so that nobody else gets sick. This is their idea, that, that Jesus was condemned by God. He was under Yahweh's curse. His death was a consequence and a confirmation of his guilt. Clearly, this guy has done whatever wrong thing. And his dead body, if left on the cross, would make the earth unclean. Make the earth unclean. And so the soldiers then came by and broke the legs of the first man who was crucified with Jesus, and then the other. When they came to Jesus, they found out that he was already dead, faster than usual. And they did not break his legs. And then a couple of verses later, it says, These things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled, that none of his bones would be broken. It's a passage he's referencing. John is quoting Exodus chapter 12. And Exodus chapter 12 is a whole series of instructions for the Israelites about how to have the Passover meal how to have the meal that they're going to have before God rescues them out of Egypt. How is it they're going to gather together in this moment and prepare themselves to be set free from their bondage in Egypt? Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for generations, and there's this series of nine signs showing Yahweh's supremacy over Pharaoh, and Pharaoh continually refuses to let God's people go, and so Israel's warned that an angel of the Lord is going to pass through the land, and the firstborn son in every Egyptian household is going to die. And then when that happens, Pharaoh will finally let his people go, that the firstborn son will die, will receive all of God's judgment upon the Egyptians. But the Israelites, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to take a lamb and slaughter it and then spread its blood on the doorframe of the houses like you do when you're preparing a meal at home. <laughs> right? Just spread the blood on the doorframe and then go back inside and cook the meal. Right? So spread the doorframe and then go in and cook the meal. But what would happen is that Yahweh would pass over their homes and spare their firstborn. See the blood and pass over, and then they would be liberated. They would be set free. So when you think about Passover, there's always two images that come to the forefront. One is the image of judgment, and the other one is the image of liberation. 
that there's going to be this moment of judgment that's going to fall on the firstborn of Egypt and a moment of liberation that's going to spare the firstborn of Israel, but really be the key that sets the Israelites free, that allows them to finally leave this land. So they're supposed to choose a lamb, and the lamb must be a one-year-old male without defect. Perfect. They're supposed to kill it and spread the blood and cook it and eat it. But Exodus 12, 46 says this. It says it must be eaten inside the house, take none of the meat outside, and do not break any of the bones. Do not break any of the bones. And the whole community has to eat and celebrate. And so throughout the New Testament, continually calling us to see the cross through the lens of the Exodus, to see what is happening in Jesus, what God is doing is a bigger and better and greater Exodus, that something is happening that we can understand a little bit by looking at it through what God did for Israel, we can now see that God is doing something greater in Jesus. And when we apply that lens, we see that Jesus is the firstborn son condemned to die. And he's the Passover lamb whose blood sets the captives free. He's the firstborn son of God condemned to die in all of our places. And the Passover lamb whose blood sets us free. That he's both in this story. He takes on the condemnation. He takes on the judgment and he sets the captives free. He fulfills both pictures. He identifies himself with us. He becomes our representative so that he can take on our sin, our rebellion, and deal with it, defeat it. It's the firstborn on whom all of judgment, the judgment of sin rests. He takes the force of sin and death upon himself so that we can escape it, so that we can be set free. He's the one chosen to suffer in our place, to become cursed so that we might be free. So in some way, those little pictures that we get in some of those literature things of Frodo taking up the ring and bearing the weight of the ring himself on behalf of everyone gives us a glimpse of a little bit of what this is like. Or Harry Potter becoming a horcrux. Sorry if I ruined that for anybody, but it's been 20 years. Um, it's too late now. That something's happening that he takes the evil upon himself in order to defeat it. This is why the New Testament writers in Galatians, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He became the curse in order to redeem us. He took on the judgment in order to set us free. And of course, he quotes Deuteronomy. See, it was already there. Here it is. And what we see in this image, if we really, really think about it, is that this image is not primarily about satisfying God's wrath. That's the typical lens that we look at when we think of the cross, that Jesus had to die solely to fulfill the wrath of God. And there's an aspect of that. There is judgment in the middle of that. It's clear that there is a judgment on sin, both capital sin, the powers in the world, and little lowercase sin, our sin that contributes to that in the world. 
that Jesus is taking that judgment upon himself, taking it into his own body. But more than anything else, the cross displays not just, it's not just about the satisfying the wrath of God, but showing God's love. This is the image of love that the New Testament gives us. There's no greater love than this, than someone would lay down a life for a friend. And God's demonstrated his love for us that while we were his enemies, he gave himself up for us. That in this story, we're the Egyptians. And Jesus comes and says, I will be the firstborn son and take on all of the judgment. Not simply to satisfy the wrath of God, but to demonstrate God's crazy love for you. Show you this is how much he cares. This is how much he loves. This is the love of God displayed in the brokenness of Jesus on the cross. The love that he has for every person in this room. The cross gives us that clearest picture of that. So they don't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. But they're not sure. Like, how do we know? Like, this is too fast. We need to make sure. And so they take a spear. And then John 19, 34 says this. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then he quotes later on, 1937, it says, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Quoting from Zechariah, of all the books that you can kind of choose from in the middle of this, why Zechariah? What is going on here? He's particularly quoting from Zechariah 12, which is part of this long oracle in 11, 12, 13, 14, about God coming and bringing about both judgment and salvation. How it is that God is going to do this, and in Jesus' time became really associated with the Messiah. The Jews thought this maybe is in some way gives us a picture of what the Messiah is going to do. Chapter 12, verse 10 says this. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Pour out a spirit of prayer. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. This is Yahweh speaking, God of Israel. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The prophet Zechariah, he's looking into a day in the future, a day when Jerusalem's enemies are going to be defeated, a day of great victory for the Lord. And in the middle of it, there's this odd passage that becomes associated with Jesus that there's going to be the Messiah that a spirit of grace and prayer is going to fall upon God's people, and they will look on Yahweh, the one they pierced in grief. So John wants us to recognize that in Jesus, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the world, is suffering with us and for us. He's the one who's pierced. That God himself enters into the world in order to take all of this upon himself. This is not simply just some guy that then later on something kind of crazy happens to him and now we're not sure what to do. But this is God himself coming into the world 
to be pierced for us, to suffer with us, and to suffer for us. So those moments where we find ourselves sort of wondering, where is God in this? God, where, where are you? Why, I'm not being healed from this. Where are you? This person was taken from me well before they should have. God, where are you? This thing that I'm struggling with will not go away. God, where are you? God, there are babies dying and wars breaking out, and this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. God, where are you? We look around the world, we read the newspaper, we watch the news, doesn't matter which channel it is, it just is dark. Where are you? And the New Testament writers say, I'm right there on a cross. Like, I know. I took it all on myself. I came to suffer with you and to suffer for you. I know it. I'm right there in the midst of it on the cross, taking it all upon myself in demonstration of my great love for you. The text goes on. Zachariah starts listing all the clans that are mourning. And the very next verse is something really interesting. It says, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That on that day, a fountain will be opened. That this piercing of Yahweh, this piercing of God, would open a fountain that will cleanse God's people from sin and impurity. The immediate result of this piercing would be the fountain would burst forth, that water would come gushing out. It would actually wash and cleanse God's people. That it would burst forth in the middle of this and remove everything that separates God's people from God's presence. It would eliminate all those divisions and wash it all clean and say, you are mine. That a fountain would burst forth. And it goes on a few verses later in 14. It says, and then on that day, still talking the same day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it to the, de to the Dead Sea and half of it to the Mediterranean Sea. And this is going to happen in summer and in winter. There will be these, this fountain will produce flows and rivers of living water pouring out in every direction at all times. That it would just keep coming. Other prophets imagined it as a river of life that was coming out from the very throne of God. And as it goes out, it removes desolation. It turns wastelands into wildernesses, deserts into an oasis. That suddenly in the places that are death and decay, that are lifeless, that suddenly life springs forth because a river of living water is flowing out, pierced and broken open in order for life to spill into the world, transforming everything in its wake. And John says, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and suddenly flow of blood and water. Suddenly, a flow of blood and water. 
On one level, this is a confirmation that Jesus is really dead. When we die, our fluids start to separate. And so when they pierced him, the separation was an indication, yes, Jesus has really died. This is not some sort of like an illusion or magic trick. Jesus is really dead. But on another level, it reminds us that the blood of the Lamb and the fountain of the living God has been poured out for his people. Blood of the Lamb and the fountain of living water pierced open and broken out and streaming in every direction all day long. Streaming, coming out. We recognize that though the Jewish leaders thought Jesus' crucified body was a toxin, we actually see that Jesus' crucified flesh is not a, to- a toxin that pollutes the earth but a tonic that restores everything. And they didn't see it. They thought, oh, this is a criminal condemned to die, and we've got to bury him quickly because if we don't, he's going to pollute everything. But instead, what was really happening is that Jesus, the Son of God, was becoming the Lamb of God, and that his piercing was not a toxin that was coming out, but the very living water of God that all of creation needed in order to be set free and restored. The coming out of Jesus' own flesh was everything that we could possibly need or imagine in order to be restored. To come and restore us to God's presence. To restore us to our full humanity. Cleanse us from all those things that we feel guilt and shame about. All those things that on our conscience we feel just separate us completely and totally and continually from God coming to restore all of creation's goodness, taking all the dead places and making them alive again, coming and bringing forth redemptive blood and healing waters, really beyond anything, restoring God's kingdom on earth that is in heaven, which is exactly where Zechariah goes. The very next thing he says, he says, on that day, the Lord will be king. On that day when he's pierced and these fountains flow out of him, on that day, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. On that day. See, it's through the cross that Jesus is actually becoming king. The one who raises victorious the one who establishes his kingdom on earth, the one who says, do you want to know who's really in charge here? Do you want to know? It's me. As a king, I didn't come in power to punish, but I came in weakness to purify. I did not come simply just in this display of wrath, but I took all the wrath and judgment of sin on myself to demonstrate my great love to you. I became the firstborn son and the Passover lamb. I took it all on myself. And by the way, I'm the one who created it all. And it's through this that I'm going to become king again, that I'm going to allow my body be broken open because when I'm broken open, the living, healing cleansing, forgiving, redemptive waters of God will be poured out on the whole earth. 
and bring all the dead things back to life again. This is what's happening on the cross. This is what's happening on Good Friday. The great demonstration of love and a fulfillment of all that God had in place. And all of these images collide for us in this moment. And every week we come to remember it. We remember it when we think about our baptism. The redemptive waters. The waters that cleanse and purify. We remember that we've been washed clean. We're no longer separated from God, but we've been brought back to him by the sacrifice of Jesus. And we remember it when we take the bread and the cup. Say, this is his body, which is broken for you. His blood, which is shed for you. And we pray this prayer in the Methodist tradition that, God, that you would come and make these be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. So I'm going to turn it over to Pastor John, who's going to come and lead us to the table in this moment, but recognizing that as we receive our deep prayers, that he would help us to see that he is the Passover lamb, and that in him we find redemption, in him we find cleansing, In him we find healing. In him we find all the things that our souls desperately crave and need. John.